before we get going with this week's episode, just a quick request from me and the Deep Dive team. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could rate and review this show on whichever podcast platform you use. It helps other people discover the show and it makes us feel good, especially if the reviews are positive. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show so far. Okay, so I was listening to this podcast um, and the woman that they interviewed studied the earth and she's done this whole, all this research which is titled this is the good place and we're ruining it or something like that and now we're walking up a hill in Icky and it's literally perfect the birds are chirping the streets are clean the temperature is like ideal it's pretty much silent I don't see any indication of like any duress anywhere <laughs> um but yeah, first municipality to declare a climate emergency. Hello and a very warm welcome to Deep Dive. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. When I first moved to Japan, I lived in the seaside city of Fukuoka, down in the southwest of the country. Anyone who's spent any time there at all will tell you what a great city it is. The weather's a bit warmer than Tokyo, and the pace of life is just that much slower. It's heaven for those who dream of ramen, and it generally escapes the worst of Japan's natural disasters. Which is why I was very surprised to learn back in September that a small island just to the north of Fukuoka had become the first place in Japan to declare a climate emergency. That island's name is Iki. And though the easiest way to reach it is by ferry from Fukuoka, it's actually part of Nagasaki Prefecture. Every summer, Iki becomes a really popular retreat for overheated Fukuokans. And the last time I'd been to the island was to try and surf at one of its sandy breaks. With this as my most recent memory of the island, I was really interested in what had motivated Iki to make the declaration. So my colleague, Jesse Chase-Lubitz and I, decided to go west and investigate. Jesse, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. I'm curious to know, what were your first thoughts on Iki? Well, first, it's really far away. <laughs> I remember waking up that morning and just being like, I'm never going to take sleep for granted again. Um, we had to take pretty much every form of transport to get there. A plane from Tokyo, a subway from the airport, a taxi to the port. I'm pretty sure we walked a while. Um, and then finally, a jet foil ferry to the island. Um, a jet foil is like a regular ferry suspended in the air on like a blade so it goes really fast sort of like a retro water spaceship i feel like i'm about to be propelled except that we're facing backwards so i'm not sure which direction we're gonna go right now but once we got there it was really beautiful we rented a car drove the wrong direction for a little while and then accidentally stumbled upon this incredible sunset it was totally perfect and as we started our interviews, we started hearing people call the island a lucky island because compared to the rest of Japan, it doesn't actually have a big history of natural disasters. So, yeah, we were both like, where's the climate emergency? Yeah, I remember feeling exactly the same. The birds were kind of out and singing and it was a really beautiful evening with that amazing sunset. Everything we saw when we first got to the island seemed really incongruous with the declaration they had recently made. Yeah, it was, it was totally perfect. 
And so we set out to answer these three overarching questions that we had. Uh, the first was, you know, why the island had actually declared its emergency. Second was what it actually hopes to achieve now that it has. And the third was how it might set an example for the rest of the country. Uh, so, Jesse, let's start with the first of those three questions. Why did the island choose to declare a climate emergency? Yeah. So, so based on their declaration statement, they said that it was because they recognized the threat of climate change and what that poses to humanity and the natural world. But what we found was a little bit different. It was more specific to the island. Um, and we kind of came away with three main reasons. The first two are longer term issues. Um, I'd say the first is the island problem, just kind of the fact that it's an island. Icky itself is extremely small, um, very isolated. It's 40 minutes to drive as long as you can across the island. Um, we only found two family marts and that's it. There was no 7-Eleven for anything else. Um, yeah, for someone who's used to the uh, busy streets of Tokyo and a convenience store in every corner, that's a bit of a shock. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was so strange to have to drive everywhere. Um, yeah, the population only has 26,000 people and a lot of the villages are built around the ports and right on the coast. So it's extremely vulnerable to sea level rise. So it's got this island community problem that there's just simply not that much land. What exactly. is there is all quite lowing and most of the kind of housing and villages are built around um, the ports and the, and the coastline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what we that's what we were seeing. So just moving on to the second reason, that's kind of the rapidly declining population, which we're seeing everywhere in Japan. And this brings up broader questions of the island's sustainability and longevity and the local government kind of sees climate change as something that might accelerate that decline. And the third reason? The third reason is more urgent. Iki's economy is really dependent on their farming and fishing industries, which are both very susceptible to changes in climate due to rising sea temperatures and increased flooding or landslides from storms and typhoons. Okay, so taken together, these three kind of problems that we found that were quite specific to Iki actually make it sound like a bit of a microcosm of Japan as a whole. Yeah, that's exactly what we thought. Japan actually topped the list of countries most affected by the climate crisis in 2018. So it seems likely that whatever happens on Iki will play out across Japan as a whole. Tell me about the fishermen. The fishermen, yeah. On our second day on the island, we drove to the northeast corner to a small port town called Katsumoto. Um, we actually went to this pretty empty fisheries building in this kind of stark conference room with one painting on the wall. Um, and that's where we met Yasushi Matsumoto and Katsuyuki Sakaguchi. <laughs> They told us one of the most concerning stories that we had heard on the island. Uh, so they both work at Katsumoto Fisheries, and they had spent most of their lives diving. But in the last 20 years, their team of divers had shrunk from 40 people to just 10. And what kind of things were they diving for? So they were mainly diving for shellfish. Um, but I think that they kind of went for anything that they could find at this point. 
When they're not diving, they also go out on fishing boats and try to catch tuna and other types of fish. A lot of what they caught got sold at the Katsumoto Morning Market, which is right around the corner from the fisheries. They told us that they were seeing lower and lower catches every year and that this was caused by a decline in seaweed beds near the island. Yeah, I remember them spending quite a lot of time talking about um, the decline of the local seaweed beds. They actually had this term for it um, in Japanese called isoyake, which basically means seaweed desertification. But what exactly is the problem there with, with the decline in these local seaweed beds? Seaweed beds are vital for healthy fish communities. Um, They trap carbon dioxide, release oxygen. They're basically like fish nurseries. The decline in seaweed beds is mainly caused by rising sea temperatures. And this is a persistent and ongoing problem. Like you mentioned, they have a word for it. That's how common it is around Japan. Um, Over the past 100 years, sea temperatures around Iki have increased by an average of 1.24 degrees Celsius. Uh, There's actually a specific event in 2013 where average sea temperatures rose to 30 degrees and stayed there for eight days straight. So this kind of loosened the seaweed beds from the seafloor and then a typhoon came a few days later and washed all the beds onto shore. And this kind of made the whole problem much worse and and accounts for some of this recent decline. Yeah, exactly. So just how badly has the decline of seaweed beds affected these fishermen's catch? Pretty Badly. Between 2008 and 2017, the catch declined by 50%. In 2007, fishing brought in about 5.2 billion yen, which is almost $50 million. And in 2017, it was about half that. Wow, that cut is massive. That's, That's absolutely huge. How do they feel about this? Based on just talking to them, they were pretty despondent, honestly. they The kind of emptiness of the fisheries that I mentioned earlier seemed like a metaphor for their situation. They're trying to catch different fish, different types of fish now um, and use other technologies to catch more at a time. But, but yeah, once we asked them kind of what would happen if the catch continues to decline at this rate, they said that there wouldn't be anything else left for them to do. Yeah, to me, to me, this sounds like a proper, proper emergency. Right, yeah, like we get to this amazing, beautiful island. We're like, where's the emergency? And and then we talk to these fishermen and it's kind of like, here, here's the emergency. We found it. It's a really serious problem. And it's also having ripple effects across Iki's economy. We met one person, Seiji Okamoto. Uh, he was actually our Airbnb host and had lots of beautiful cats that we played with for a while. Uh, but his main source of income is from repairing and restoring the boats of fishermen. He, he actually took the business over from his dad around 10 years ago. And how has his situation changed recently? So over the last few years, the number of boats has been dwindling, and he's had more and more customers asking to pay in installments over longer periods of time or just de- delaying their payment entirely. He's actually starting to transition his business from repairing boats into crushing them. Um, fewer fishermen means more abandoned boats. So he's thinking that might be a more lucrative business. We also asked him what he thought would happen if the fishing industry kept declining. And he told us that for now he feels okay and that he can stay on the island and he plans to stay on the island, but that he'd have to think again if things keep getting worse. Yeah, eventually even the boats that need crushing will run out. Right. (laughs) 
So we found one problem on the island, and that was the effects of climate change on the fishing industry and the ripple effects of this um, that run through into the broader economy. Uh, but we also saw that farming was being affected. Right. So farming is probably the next biggest industry being affected. And this is mainly because there's been um, an in- increase in these heavy rains that damage their crops. At the end of June, it rained for 24 hours, and the peak rainfall was 118.5 millimeters in one hour. That's like water going up to your ankle, basically. There were a total of 19 landslides, eight flooded roads, two hours of power outages, and 300 farmland-related disasters. And how often do these kind of events um, actually occur on Iki? Well, the last few years would suggest that it's happening a lot more. Everybody we talked to said that the storm in June was a once in a 50 year event. It kind of, it was like the most consistent thing that we heard across all of our interviews. But since then it's happened two more times. And I think people are worried that this might become a new normal. Yeah, a really striking example of this was when we met with the owners of uh, Ryokan um, up in the north of the island as well. Um, they gave us this absolutely incredible breakfast, which they'd grown mostly from their farm. Yeah, I, I discovered many do, new types of lettuce that morning. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, but yeah, that's a great example. Um, Hiromi and her daughter-in-law, Makiko Hirayama, they run this Ryokan, which is connected to their farm. Um, and they take care of 100 chickens and grow their own vegetables. Um, and they're, they're really proud to be able to serve these to their customers. So this is the where it grows. So that meaning every power and energy is here. That's why she cleans it very nicely. So I should eat all of this. At one point, we were gently scolded for leaving the roots of the vegetables and told that we had to eat them because they contain all the power. Yes, yeah, it's kept me going for the like following three months. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, during one of these rainfalls, their farm was hit pretty hard and some of their crops were completely washed away. So this is one example of the 300 farmland-related disasters that I mentioned. Farming is really important to Icky's economy and an increase in these more powerful storms and flooding threatens the livelihood of the farmers. As I mentioned earlier, many of the residents we spoke to considered Iki to be this lucky island, but I think the recent storms have maybe shaken this faith. The effects we saw on the fishing and farming industries, I think, answers that question of why Icky actually declared an emergency. Um, they're already feeling the effects of climate change, and I think many of the islanders believe it'll only get worse. So let's go on to the second big question. Um, what does Icky actually hope to achieve through its declaration? So Icky has four main objectives outlined in the declaration. The first is to raise awareness of climate change on Icky. The second is to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy sources by 2050. The third is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the fourth is to contact other government offices to take action. 
it sounds like a lot of these goals are kind of more long-term focused and actually don't really address the immediate impacts on the fishing and farming communities that we saw. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty crucial. Uh, we asked this question to the mayor, focusing on the fishing industry, which is the most vulnerable. He acknowledged that the decline of fish was a serious problem and that Icky's economy would take a big hit if it continues. Uh, but he, he doesn't actually have any short-term plans to address it. He was much more future-focused and spent a lot of time discussing new technologies they're planning to introduce, such as auto-watering asparagus and self-driving buses. Yeah, I did wonder at the time why or how auto-watering asparagus was actually going to help people being affected by the climate emergency on the island. But yeah, I think it's for it's, another debate, I think. <laughs> I think it's like it's more forward-thinking and maybe right now they need to be looking at what's already being affected. In terms of the uh, four goals they've set out then, um, if they're not focusing on the things currently being impacted, what, what action has the local government taken since the declaration? Well, it's only been five months since they declared, uh, but we found that they've been most active and successful in spreading awareness, their first goal. They've... Um, they have these educational initiatives to teach school children about the climate crisis. They even have this garbage collection campaign in which 20 schools compete against each other to pick up the most trash within an hour. They're also putting some climate-related articles in their local magazine. I think in general we found that people were more focused on plastic and like picking up plastic and, and kind of waste washing up on the beaches. But in terms of using more renewables and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, it's less clear what action they're taking or how they hope to achieve their targets. For example, their transition to renewable energy. Their goal is to get to 100% renewables by 2050 with intermediate goals of 24% by 2030 and 15% by 2024. And does this seem feasible to you from what you saw going around the island? Solar produces about 7% of the island's electricity right now, but they're... The so it's not that big a jump up to 15%. That's true. Yeah. Looking at it like that, it's possible. But the problem is that they're not using the solar panels to their full potential, and they don't really have a plan to. Um, the panels were actually shut down 70 times between 2016 and 2019 because the island doesn't have enough batteries to store the energy the panels produce. We actually went out and, and looked at one of these solar fields with a government official, and he told us that they have no plans to buy new batteries at the moment. And what about the greenhouse gas target? Right. So for greenhouse gases, um, the island's plans kind of go against what you would expect. They seem a little counterproductive. Right now, they have a plan to increase their number of cattle from 7,500 to 8,600. And cow farming is notorious for emitting high amounts of greenhouse gases. The island also outlined a plan to extend the runway to allow more planes to land on the island. This is supposed to kind of increase tourism and boost the economy, but it will just create more pollution from airplanes. So at the moment we have basically this climate declaration, which seems to not address any of the current issues the island is facing. And apart from spreading awareness, most things seem in a very early stage of development slash not really being developed at the moment. Um, and there's no really concrete plans for how they're going to achieve these long-term targets. Um, I remember feeling 
quite pessimistic actually about the impact of the declaration when we were going around um, the island and talking to some of the people at City Hall. But what were your impressions of uh, what the people on Iki actually think about the declaration? Yeah, so there was really a mixture of responses. A lot of people were just as surprised as we were that Japan's first climate emergency had been declared on Iki. So they didn't really feel like they were particularly being affected by the issues of climate change, or at least weren't really making a connection between the changes they were seeing playing out on the island and climate change. Right. They mentioned the rains mainly, but other than that, they don't seem to think that they're facing a lot of danger at this point. Like I said earlier, they're worried about plastics and the plastics washing up onto their beaches. Which is no bad thing. It's good. It's just not as focused on kind of the longer term issues. But in general, there tends to be a pretty high level of support for the declaration. You said we saw a mixture of responses, though. What about the people who are less engaged? Yeah, we did find people who who hadn't really engaged with the declaration at all. The fishermen for example, who are the most likely to be affected by climate change, hadn't even read the declaration at the time that we interviewed them. So I think the general sentiment was that people weren't sure what they're supposed to do next. There was kind of a general feeling of confusion, whether it was their responsibility or the government's responsibility to take the next step. Where have we come to as our final icky destination? We've come to Monkey Rock, which is shaped like a monkey on the um, western edge of Icky. Beautiful view of the sea. Another beautiful day. Our final question was to see how Icky might set an example for the rest of the country. Um, and this moves us on to the fourth goal of the Climate Declaration, which stated that Iki was going to try and work with other governments around Japan to also spread awareness of climate change and to encourage them to declare their own climate emergencies. So, Jesse, have they had any success on this point? Um, has Iki started a broader trend in Japan? I think Iki really is at the front edge of a larger trend. Um, they declared in September, it's January now, but already we've seen the second municipality declare Kamakura in Kanagawa Prefecture, and Nagano Prefecture declared at the end of December. That was the first prefecture to declare. And then the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, while not officially declaring, did acknowledge that there was an emergency, and they created a zero emissions plan at the end of December as well. So Iki's really happy to see that the movement is spreading. But what about at the national government level. The Environment Minister Shinjiro Koizumi said back in the day that uh, Japan has to make climate change sexy and cool, uh, but also came under a lot of fire at the COP conference in Madrid about Japan's ongoing commitment to coal. Um, the country actually won the Fossil of the Year award for its ongoing contributions there. Um, has the national government got any plans to declare an emergency? Basically, no. Uh, we asked them about Icky's climate emergency, an official at the Environment Ministry said that they recognize that there are declarations in other countries, but they have no plans to make an emergency declaration themselves. So in that case, what do you think ultimately the significance of Icky's declaration is moving forward? 
So I think in order to solve the challenges of climate change or even to begin to start to solve them, it needs to be a global effort. And Japan is the world's third largest economy, but currently shows no commitment to reducing its contributions to the climate crisis. So if Ikki can spur a successful grassroots movement in Japan that ultimately changes national policy, that's where the story of Ikki becomes something that really matters. And what's the likelihood of this actually happening? Well, honestly, I'm not really sure. Um, I think Japan's at a juncture right now. The declarations could inspire people to embrace sustainable lifestyles. They could force the government to commit to change. Um, but I think that there's a sense on Ikki that now that it's declared, it has to show initiative and leadership so that it's not kind of a hollow declaration. Well, Jesse, thank you very much for taking the time today and for all your work on this story. Thank you. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd. Our guest this week was Jesse Chasley-Bitts, and you can find a link to our article on the climate emergency declaration on Icky and all the photographs that accompany that in the notes of this week's episode. This podcast is part of a series that the Japan Times is running at the moment on the climate emergency and how it affects Japan. And the next few episodes will be on similar topics. More information on that in the episode notes. I want to say a huge thank you to Trevor West for being our guide around Icky. Trevor, we couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. But if you're wanting more deep dive, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whichever podcasting platform you use. And if you're enjoying the show, give us a rating and a review. It helps other people discover the show as well. Until next time, thanks as always for listening and a well-deserved Podskadisam. like a leisurely ride the wind in my hair on my way to report on Icky Island but no this is serious shit I'm fucking it